I watch film, but I'd be honest, I mean, when I first started watching film, I was just watching the game. Winning isn't everything, but it's the only thing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. I'm your host, as usual, at Steedy NFL on Twitter. And of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And of course, it's a Monday. It's the History Podcast. And this is a very, very important podcast. It's a Lombardi years. And to walk through it, as usual, is my fellow buddy old pal is at Ryan Peacock NFL. Uh, would you believe it or not, his name is Ryan Peacock. And it's Mr. Ryan Peacock. Ryan, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. Uh, this has been really fun looking into this. This is definitely, without doubt, my favourite era in Packers football. And the more the more I found I started reading into it, the more I was just reading, reading, reading and not and not really making any notes. So it's definitely taken me ten times as long to get through this one. But it's been good fun doing it. Yeah, do you know what? It's nerve-wracking too because I feel that in all the other podcasts that we had, you know, we were just informing people and they didn't really know a lot about the era where this is the first era really, you know, with the first Super Bowl and all that, that, you know, you, you really feel that people know what we're going to be talking about so again apologies it's not meant to be comprehensive we've said that before now again look let me put another disclaimer here before we get into the meat and bones of it we do get the odd tweet now we get a lot of tweets saying that they like the history podcast they think they're cool we do get the odd tweet from people saying hey you missed this or you said that wrong or yada yada right this is not meant to be comprehensive we're doing our best to try bring you as much as we can kind of get a feel for it uh, so Ryan, we're, look, we're not saying we're experts here, are we? That you know we are doing we're a comprehensive from you know one end to the other. It's bringing you funny stories, facts, giving you a general feel for the thing, and you can go maybe bring it away if you're interested and look into it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing. And and of course, you know, none of this comes from personal memory. We weren't there, so a lot of this stuff we've had to go and research, and we're we're, we're sort of recounting and uh, retelling other people's stories. And yeah, like you said, it's trying to just give a feel of the era. Um, especially with the 60s, like I said, because it's such a famous period and because those names are so famous. Um, we're going to spend so much time here talking about it and we're probably just going to scratch the surface as well. So we, we've really tried to just draw out some of the points and and, uh, and have some fun with it. Yeah, so I think the best thing really to set the mood for this period is to take a quick look at 1958 again. So this was our last podcast. Now, again, we've done a good few volumes now. We're up as far as 19. 19- 59 so this is when vince lombardi comes to town so to look at 1958 uh the packers were one and ten it's the worst ever record and that was by uh, the head coach scooter mclean came in he was an assistant coach at the time uh they brought him back and it was the worst record in packers history so again like what you said on the last podcast ryan right that an awful lot of the players that were on the team at the time were going to be these hall of famers going to be these famous players but back then, even though they were on the team, Scooter McLean just couldn't get anything out of them, really. And we do have to question throughout this whole podcast, and this is maybe what we're going to pose. Were the players really that good? Or was Vince Lombardi really that good? Or was it a mixture of the two? Yeah, and I think... I mean, the guys will make their minds up, the listeners make their minds up, but I think you've got a mixture of the two. There were some great drafts done in the late 50s because all these players were being brought into the team then, but... A lot of the players were coming onto the team and Vince Lombardi was changing a position or um, was doing something different to what they were doing in college. And he not only gets them to be competent in that position, but he gets them to be dominant, not only on our team, but in the league in that position. So I think a lot of these, a lot of the success goes down to, yes, the draft, but then Vince Lombardi working his magic. Yeah, now again, we sort of decided before the podcast that it is called the, the Lombardi era. It is all about Vince Lombardi and his soldiers here. But we didn't want to try delve too far into Vince Lombardi because, I mean, look, we could do a whole mini series A on this era and B on Vince himself because he's such a fascinating character. Um, so I think the only way really to set the mood with the whole thing is to bring the man on himself. So as spine tingling as this is going to sound to the listeners... Can you please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Vince Lombardi? Winning, uh, well, I think it's only natural that anyone would think that to win is, uh, is important. That's the reason you're in this business. If you have any kind of pride or any kind of dedication or any kind of backbone or spunk to you, you should try to be the best uh, in your own profession, regardless of what it is. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all is necessary, I think he's in the wrong business. I think, I think he's in the wrong country, let me put it that way. I think one of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. 
So Ryan, uh, we've had some guests on the podcast. We've never had that before. Yeah, and I think uh, that's that's probably going to be an exclusive. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Packers Nation, you heard him here first. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so again, you heard from the man himself. You can see that his ethos is just all about winning, and it was from day one. So we'll get into later where he moves to the Washington Redskins, and he has the same ethos, and people are amazed by him. And one of the comments that he said you know that sort of memorial in washington the big long sort of lake memorial outside you know george washington sitting there doing his thing and he came to washington and he says look lads contrary to popular belief i can't walk across that water because he was sort of reverend at that stage but he built that sort of thing in green bay so this is reminiscent and we start off as usual from the start it's always good to start off from the start so 1959 vince comes to town it's after scooter mclean they had a one and ten record right one ten and one so it's it's just unbelievable right i heard someone say they underwhelmed 10 teams overwhelmed one team and didn't whelm the other team at all that's how bad they were back in 1958 so 1959 it kind of reminded me ryan of the Leroy butler interview where Leroy was part of a team that was a losing team and had a losing mentality, a losing ethos. Uh, and then in came Ron Wolf. He stepped into the dressing room and said to the lads, listen, an awful lot of you boys aren't going to be here next uh, year. I'm having a clean out and that's how we're going to roll. And that's exactly what Vince Lombardi did. When he came in, he had a massive clear out. So wide receiver Billy Houghton, he was the top wide receiver uh, in the decade. Uh, he went off to Cleveland for halfback Lou P- uh, Carpenter and a, a defensive end called Bill Quinlan. And then he got uh, quarterback Lamar McCann. Now, Lamar McCann appears a lot uh, in the early years here because Vince is kind of, you know, because Bart Starr was way down the draft class. He was a quiet reserve guy. You need your quarterback to be kind of a leader in the locker room. Bart Starr, like what you'll hear, we'll hear Jerry Kramer say about him later, is he's very reserved. You know, he, he's a quiet guy, always a gentleman. He wasn't a Joe Namath. He didn't go out with his fur coats and have all the ladies. Uh, so he ha- he brought your man in, quarterback Lamar McCann uh, from the Cardinals at the time. And then with Bobby Dillon retiring, he brought in a defensive back called Emlyn Tunnel. Now again, famous Hall of Famer. He also brought in offensive guard Fuzzy Thurston from the Colts and defensive tackle Henry Jordan from the Browns. So he brought in a lot of players with him, which is a very risky thing for a coach to do, Ron, isn't it? To sort of, okay, you can change the mentality and the ethos. Now again... This is a UK Packer podcast and, you know, we're all obsessed with soccer here. And that did annoy people when we had Michael Graham on and he was bashing soccer. And I had to get back to a guy actually on Twitter. He got really angry about it saying, oh, here we go. What are you going to do? Bash soccer again for 10 minutes. And I was like, no. So if you look at it the same way as Jose Mourinho came out and said about United, uh, not saying I'm a United fan, but it was just funny from a managerial perspective, said that he had to get Louis van Gaal's mentality and change the mentality, but it was ingrained in the players after two years. So it's very hard to do. So isn't it risky, Ryan, to come into a locker room, clear out, like he cleared out 16 veterans. Uh, Howie Ferguson, gone. Bay Perilli, which we talked about in the last podcast, gone. Al Carmichael, gone. 16 veterans from 1958 team released. He comes in, releases all the boys, brings in his new stuff, changes the mentality. Now, Ryan, to me, that sounds like a massive risk. It's a risk, but it's a, it's a coach that's got a very clear idea of what he wants from the team. So he has, obviously, a way he wants to play, and he sees players that match that, and he must have players within his existing squad that don't match that. So I think, actually, what he does is very simple. He simply brings the players in that matches the schemes he wants to play. I mean, let's face it, those players he got rid of, we're saying 16 vets, but through most of the 50s, those 16 vets were not performing. So, you know, it's, it's no surprise really. And it probably took somebody with a bit of confidence to come in and clear out some of the, some of those players. Um, some of them had simply just had the day and others just weren't good enough. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, it's very much the start of obviously what the, the, the rebirth of this um, franchise. Yeah. It's important. What you say really is that it's the man with the confidence behind his coaching because Again, we won't delve too much into it, but we have to scratch the surface. Is that with Vince? You know, he went to a Jesuit college. It was kind of his son talks about, you can watch documentaries of him on YouTube. So his son does be talking about his dad and the brother does be talking about the Jesuits, the way they went on. Is that there were massive academics. So he was a very academic coach. He was a teacher. So an awful lot of people think he just went straight into coaching. He didn't. He actually coached high school when he was in his 30s. Now, bear in mind, Vince died when he was 57. So if you think when he's in his 30s, he's, he's coaching a high school team, it'll go to show you his meteoric rise to sort of, I don't want to say fame, you know. It, well, it is fame, obviously, but it's, you know, that's not what he was looking for. It's just, he was methodical. He loved coaching and even said that on Vince's honeymoon, you know, the wife knew 
on their honeymoon that there was going to be a mistress in the relationship and that mistress was going to be football because halfway through he, he turned around and said right honeymoon's over that's it we're going home we've got training camp and this is for a high school team so it's a bit crazy that he was so engrossed in it so 1959 he comes in as you say he clears out because he's got a clear mind and the Green Bay Packers have their first winning record in 12 years so since 19. 19- 44 or whatever you know they didn't have even a winning record so he opened the season with three wins with Lamar McCann which was the quarterback at the time who sort of was in ahead of Bart Starr Bart Starr was the backup and then after winning the first three they lost five in a row and so Starr was in for the last loss of that five and people say oh it was Bart Starr he was the quarterback from then on he wasn't you know he sort of came in and out there was some backups um, so they lost five in a row one of those last losses was with Star, but then Star won the last five games but what I found interesting Ryan and I don't know if you came across this that Vince Lombardi and Bart Starr never were how many times have we seen in the Packers history that the Packers never almost never were the Packer players almost never were I mean mm-hmm. it just seems like fate really you know about the whole thing which is important because Vince Lombardi was so religious yeah and um, well one of the things I thought was unreal and it's something I learned when I looked into Bart Starr in particular Bart Starr was a 17th round draft pick. Yeah. Right? So I had to look at that twice because I looked at that and thought, ah, the 17th pick in the draft. No, 17th round draft pick. And he goes on to be that, you know, that fantastic quarterback. And again, that has to come back to Lombardi and and what he managed to get out of that player. Yeah. And again, like, you know, it really is the, the way all of it comes together with the Packers uh it's a bit crazy you know all these coincidences and stuff coming together so Vince Lombardi was the assistant coach for New York at the time and Bart Starr of course was still on the team but they actually wanted a guy Randy Duncan and he played for Iowa so he was meant to be the first round pick for the Packers and his coach at Iowa and again I'm sorry if I butcher these names uh first Evenshki right sorry let me say that again Evashevsky I'm sorry I'm not Eastern European uh so you know, Forrest was the coach down there in Iowa. They wanted him and he also wanted Randy Duncan as the first round pick. They thought that that would be a great talent to have. And they interviewed Randy. And now Randy saw that the Packers. Now, again, you have to bear in mind that this is 1959, 1958, the most tragic team in the NFL. Randy took one look at the Packers and said, not having it, not doing it. So he said he wasn't going to go to the Packers and he went off to play for Canada. Now, he eventually became a lawyer, fell off the face of the earth. You know, had a great lawyer experience. Didn't have many sacks as a lawyer, as you can imagine. Um, so that's what he went off and did and the head coach for Iowa looked at the Packers and said I'm not having that either so he stayed at Iowa but if they would have taken the Iowa coach Randy said that he definitely would have signed for the Packers then because he would have been used to the system so Vince Lombardi and Bart Starr might never have been but it's important as well sort of around this area to look at what actually was and not what was almost and Jerry Kramer 1958 draft which was the year before Vince came in he was on the team already so was Ray Nitschke so was Jim Taylor so was Dan Curry and you're going to be looking at all these boys later on a little bit in the podcast right aren't you I mean these are studs yeah I mean this is it again like like We'll take a look at the all-decade team for the 60s, and this is in stark, stark contrast to the 50s. The 50s, if you remember, had just two players. Yeah. And and as we discussed in that podcast, they were probably in there more for what they did with the other teams that they played for in their careers and not so much Green Bay, which they ended up at towards the end of their careers. This time around, we, we've got, I mean, I've got three or four pages of players that have made that team. It's just name after name after name, superstar after superstar. It was interesting what you said about that quarterback that could have been with us. Does that mean he's the 60s version of Eli Manning? Did he throw <laughs> throw a bit of a fit and was like, I'm not going there, I'm not playing there? Yeah, true strop. But I mean, at least Eli Manning went with the Chargers, then got switched. You know, this guy went to Canada and just, you know, fell off the face of the earth. So yeah, kind of similar in a way, but you know, I don't know. What, what's worse, the Chargers or Canada? I mean, you decide. Um, oh, I don't know. I don't like Eli Manning, so I'm just going to say Eli Manning's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> the person himself fair enough yeah uh, so yeah I mean you know 1960 it gets better again 1959 comes in they're 1 in 10 and he turns the team around to be 7 and, and 5 incredible 1959 1960 they return to the championship game which is insane so they went to the championship game faced the Eagles again it's the first time since 1944 that they reached the championship game uh, you know on the Scooter McLean era they were last in passing last in rushing now with Jim Taylor they rushed for 1,101 yards he broke Canadale's record Paul Horning set the NFL record with 176 points and Paul Horning golden boy I mean you know he was such a dynamic player but again uh, Ryan he's a guy you looked at he was almost uh, never going to be that standout running back was he because 
uh, Vince Lombardi and everybody kind of didn't know how to use him. Yeah, well, he, he, he turned up. He was a Heisman winner in college as a quarterback. Quarterback, that's crazy. Yeah, so then Vince turns up, moves him into the halfback position, as they call it, then a, a running back. I mean, he then spends nine, not over nine seasons, scores something like 760 points, um, runs 3,711 yards. And then on top of that has nearly 1,500 receiving yards as well. And I think in 1960, he scores 176 points in one season. You know, this, this player, and again, so this is another guy, and like I touched on earlier, Lombardi takes these players who fit a system that are smart players, they make, and he brings them in, and he moulds them into the player he wants, whether that be the same position they came out of college in, and he changes the way in which they do it, or whether he just goes, do you know what, I like your skill set, I like your intelligence, but I want to use it, but I'm going to use it here instead. And then he doesn't just, like I say, he doesn't just get these guys playing a position, he gets them completely excelling in a position. Yeah, he does, you know what, and this isn't the only year that he does that with someone, and we'll get on to him now a little bit later. Let's just run through how they did. Bart Starr becomes the starter, week six. Lamar McCann, there's no reason for him, this is what I found incredible, that you know Lombardi must have seen something in Starr, and there's a story about where Lombardi, when he goes to the Redskins in 1968, uh, 1969 he, he comes up to visit star and he brings him into his house and star says he shows him around his house and he says to vince you know all of this would not be possible without you so vince lombardi makes bart star the starter in week six now they'd won four games so lamar mccann had won four out of the six and he was benched so it goes to show you know lombardi's fate that he had in bart star but they almost didn't win the conference so they win, won the conference went to the championship game lost to the eagles 17-13 um, but the Colts and the Bears collapsed that season so it was kind of like when the Bears were going to overtake us a few a few years ago remember and we were sort of chasing them and then they sort of disintegrated at the end typical the Bears suck style um, it was a weird year for personnel really uh, you know some stuff stands out to me there was two deaths that year so there was Jack Finisi which is tragic he was only 33 he's the guy credited with bringing Ray Nitschke and you know all these massive players Jerry Kramer to the team he was the director of player personnel he was only 33 years of age when he died of a heart attack so he'd rheumatic fever and that brought on this heart attack and it killed him um and then another notable death of that year was andrew turnbull so as we said in earlier podcasts he was the team's first president he died age 76 so again i mean he had what's that 43 years on jack venisi which is which is tragic but another player right i think you looked at as well willie wood willie wood was signed in um 1960 and again, a guy who, like Hornung, I mean, he, you know, they weren't playing him in the right position and he had a pretty grisly start. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't selected in the draft at all. And this is, this is a nice story. I liked this. He, uh, he sends a letter to Coach Lombardi and he requests that Lombardi gives him a tryout. Um, so he turns up at the Packers. Uh, now he's a quarterback coming out of college. <laughs> Another quarterback, it's great. Another one. It just seems like what we did was just bring in loads of quarterbacks and then go, well, you're all good athletic players, so we're going to now move you about. But he's a quarterback, and he spends the first, first few days of his tryout as a quarterback. Um, Packers sign him as a free agent. And then at some point, Willie Wood decides to request that he's moved to the defence. Now, I'm guessing at the time, he must have felt the quarterback competition was too strong or he wasn't getting the look. So he moves to defence. He ends up at safety. He goes on to then become one of the best safeties in the league. I've got here that by the second season, bearing in mind this is a new position, hadn't played this in college, new position to him. By his second season, he was a full-time starter. He goes on to be to take um, six all-NFL team uh, selections and eight Pro Bowl selections and finishes his career with 48 interceptions. I mean... This is, again, another player that has come to Lombardi, wasn't drafted, wasn't on the radar, comes in for a tryout. Lombardi sees something he likes, brings him in, move to defence, and, and Lombardi and his group of coaches turn him into a superstar. Yeah, it's so unlikely as well, because when you look at Willie Wood when he was in college, he only weighed 160 pounds. And, you know, he had so many injuries. He had a collarbone injury, so he played hurt, they said, for about two years. So, yeah, he, he sent a letter. Actually, I think it, it might have been even his coach sent a letter because he was his mate and said, here, you know, you wouldn't sign this guy. And, like, if you're looking at this guy, 160 pounds, perpetually injured, and you're going to play him in a position. So Lombardi brought him on for six and a half grand. Um, but I mean his first so you know he was on special teams at the time and it was crazy right his first game off special teams he comes in against the Colts and who's the Colts quarterback Johnny Unitas and Johnny Unitas sees him he's, you know, he's a bit wet around the ears so he picked on him 
and he, he burned them for two touchdown passes. So I mean, Lombardi looking at that can't be too happy. But as you said, I mean, he he was in the he's in the Hall of Fame now. He's only of I think there's only 15 undrafted free agents uh, that ended up in the Hall of Fame. Him being one of them. Uh, so he played every single game from 1961 to 1971. As you say, 48 picks is just incredible in 11 seasons. And as well as that, he was a punt returner. So in 1961, which we're going to get on to now, he returned two punts for touchdowns. His yards per return average was 16.1 yards per return. So, you know, he yeah. had some legs on him. Which brings us to 1961, world champions. So this is this is the first of, you know... Lombardi's fruition this is, this is the first of him you know becoming the champ that he was they went 11 and 3 and you know it was a kind of a stacked against them in a little bit this season because they'd expanded the game schedule from 12 to 14 but it didn't bother the Packers they went on and won it anyway um, but again this is the first time Ryan that we really see isn't it that there's rumours surrounding Vince Lombardi that he might be leaving and I found that sort of when we were doing the research for this Every year it seemed that there was some sort of thing of like, oh, well, Lombardi might be leaving this year. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's got the championship now. Okay, he might be leaving this year. You know, it's always like people are trying to poach him, right? Yeah, and I guess that whether that comes down to the previous coaches, the previous two or three coaches only been there for a year or two at a time, um, does that come down to Lombardi starting to be successful and Green Bay is still viewed as a small town team? Um, you know, people outside of Green Bay might go, a small town team, they're limited to what they're going to be able to do. Um like you said, the big cities, maybe uh, New York, are probably going to come looking for him. Exactly. Some, yeah. some of the other bigger cities are probably looking for him. And I think that's probably where that came from. Um, you got to remember as well, I think with the, the 60s in America, f- um, the American football was becoming far, far bigger and more popular. And there was more spotlight on, on the teams, the coaches, the players than ever before. Um, and I think maybe you start to now get real media, like national media attention on all these teams. And uh, maybe you see like what in modern day now that, you know, every time a player d- doesn't end up in a in a team, it's, it's somebody's talking about they're going to leave the club, they trade this. And it's all just paper talk. And uh, you wonder if this is sort of like the beginnings of the paper talk. Yeah, you know what? There was a bit of that, but there was an awful lot because Lombardi was a Brooklyn boy. You know, he was from New York. He was an assistant in New York. So Wellington Mara, as we, I'll sort of talk about it a little bit later at the very end, maybe, um, because we will do a Vince Lombardi specialist episode, so we won't get too bogged down. But Wellington Mara from New York always came knocking, you know, because the first year it was kind of he didn't win anything, but he, he, you know, he improved the team. So he said, you know, why don't you come to New York? And then he got to the championship game and he said, oh, well, look how good you are. Why don't you, you know, why don't you come to New York? So then he won the Super Bowl. It's like, hey, you, you know, you're a champion. You have to bring that to New York. And I was constantly trying to bring him. And now, with me being from Wicklow Town, you know, and if I had a Wicklow Town team and I was successful in Belfast or somewhere, you know, or Siberia, and someone said to me, do you want to come back to Wicklow? I mean, the temptation would definitely be there if you're a homeboy to go back. But he always said no. And 1961 was the first time that they became world champions. And they dominated, the Packers did. So Starr completed now. It doesn't sound so great now, but back then it was pretty good. 58% of his passes for a team record, 2,418 yards. They were the number one in the NFL for the rushing attack. So with Paul Horn and Golden Boy, Jim Taylor and a guy called Tom Moore, they ran for 2,000... 2000 Jeremy that's so Dublin isn't it two thousand very Irish very oh, no, Irish super Irish 2350 yards 142 first downs and 27 touchdowns the defense was sixth overall uh, they were second best in points given up uh, per game so you know they didn't give up um, a whole lot of points against them and they were second best in the league for interceptions with 29 that year and they just looked they dominated in the championship game because they missed out to the Eagles narrowly the year before so they got in against you know the New York Giants they won 37 zip so it was a complete shutout uh, they held now again you heard of Y.A. Tittle uh, you know this guy he's up there with United he's up there with Namath um, and Aaron Rodgers of course um, so they held him to six first downs he only had 130 offensive yards and, you know, Lombardi then signs a five-year contract in August to to sort of, you know, solidify him there because, as we said, the New York Giants came knocking for him. Um, and this wouldn't be the only year that they became champions. This is the start of an absolutely dominant period. And it's important, Ryan, isn't it, to stress that in this year, this is the very first football dynasty. We've had a few since, and you arguably have the Patriots now, but this is the very first time it's ever been done. Yeah, absolutely. This this I mean, this team absolutely dominated this era. Um, and I think now if you speak to any football fan you know not Packers fans but any football fans and you talk about 60s football they straight away think Packers Lombardi and probably the Packers sweep 
You know, that they're the things that, that come to mind straight away for 60s football. Yes, Johnny Unitas was a fantastic football player and probably one of the best QBs ever, you know, if not the best QB ever. So, you know, there were other things in the 60s, of course, and I am slightly biased, but I think you'll find that any football fan, you say 60s football, they say Packers. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. Like, exactly. So 60s Packers, 70s Steelers, 80s, you know, you can you can go with a few teams, you know, Niners, you can go with Dolphins, um, were fairly dominant. Like, you can mostly look at uh, what people support in the UK at certain years and how old they are to see what the dynasty was. That's why you have an awful lot of Patriots and now uh, Seattle fans, by no means a dynasty. 1962, World Champions again, 13-1. They had 10 straight wins at the start of the season. And get this, they lost to Detroit when on the Thanksgiving game. So it was 26-14, but they went on to win the next three. So they ended the season with 10 and 1. And again, they went to the New York Giants then in the championship game. And they bet them 16-7. So the Packers again dominated here. You know, the points and stuff that they racked up is kind of a stark contrast to how they'd sort of fall off at the end of the Lombardi era. And how they were at the start of the Lombardi era. So the Packers scored a league high 415 points and held their opponents to a lowly 148 points, which is crazy. The running game again, Ryan, is the main thing really here for the Packers that, as we said, like Bart Starr had 58% accuracy and that was seen as good, whereas Jim Taylor, Paul Horning were smashing it. So the running game, they set the NFL record with 36 touchdowns. Uh, despite Hornung missing for five games with a knee injury and to say that Golden Boy was out for a lot of it um, you know he still dominated and this is a year that Herb Adderley and Willie Wood had a league leading 31 interceptions you kind of had a look at Herb Adderley didn't you and how dominant that this guy was yeah I mean you're talking about the running backs there obviously Hornung and Taylor again and most football fans are going to know that all Packers fans are going to know those players um, Herb Adderley like we said before where Willie Wood ends up as one of the best safeties in the league after joining the team as a quarterback um, I love this story about Herb Adley. Uh, he, t- he comes to the team as a, as a running back or as a halfback, I think they used to call it. Um, and of course, when he joins the team, Horning and Taylor are already there. They're doing their thing. And uh, he's sort of struggling to get on offense. He's getting some, maybe some looks in training and so on. Anyway, basically what happens is he, he, he's moved to cornerback because somebody gets injured, a, a player by the name of, and this is a great name, Hank Greminger. So it seems like I mean, again, we've spoken about how the squads were much smaller back then. But anyway, Adderley gets thrown on to, to, to cover this injury. And he makes a, an interception in that game, which sets up then a game-winning touchdown for the offense. So Vince Lombardi takes a look at this and he's thinking, OK, this player can play some D. We're stacked at running back. And then in 1962, um, it's decided, basically, he will permanently switch to the defense. Yeah. Now, I've got a quote here from Vince Lombardi, and I can't... And, and, and I'll read it to you. He says, I was too stubborn to switch him to defense until I had to. And now when I think of what Adley means to our defense, it scares me to think of how I almost mishandled him. Now, I wouldn't imagine that Lombardi would ever admit to being wrong at any point, but I think that's about the closest you'll get. And it's not so much that he was wrong, but he's saying, you know, I very nearly missed out on this guy just because I... And, and, and if you think of the other players who he did change position and moved around the team... yeah. He's sort of going, how I missed this guy, I don't know. How I didn't recognise this guy, I don't know. So he goes over to cornerback. And like I said before, he moves these players around. They don't just become competent in their position, they become dominant in their position. He recorded 39 interceptions in his nine seasons with the Packers. He holds uh, records for interceptions returned for touchdowns in a career, which is seven, and he's, which is tied with Darren Sharper. And interceptions returned for touchdowns in one season which was three in 1965 so this this guy should have been a running back turns up there's already two pretty good running backs in the team wants to play ends up on defense because of an injury to somebody so almost by chance or by by fate whatever you want to call it and then ends up being dominant it says here that Adley is one of only three players in pro football history to play on six world championship teams Right, I mean that's six world championship teams at a position he never played before he got to the Packers. And Jerry Kramer actually says that Adley said once, "I'm the only man with a Dallas Cowboys Super Bowl ring who doesn't wear it because <laughs> I because I'm a Green Bay Packer." Because obviously after the Packers he went to uh, I'm presuming he went to Dallas and he must have won something there. Um, but yeah, according to Jerry Kramer, Adley said, "You know, I don't wear that because I'm a Green Bay Packer. I wear my Green Bay Packers rings." You know. So that's, it's kind of a nice story there, and it sticks it to uh, 
the team that think they're America's team. Yeah, fascinating story. Like you said, you know, and it is an important point that you raise. He isn't moving players around at a necessity to put them in a certain place and then they become okay-ish. He's moving them around and as you say, they become dominant. I mean, it's not even it's not even close to, to average that these players are coming. So, yeah, they lose the Thanksgiving game to the Lions. They were almost a perfect team, uh, which is, you know, kind of payback for Detroit because the Packers had beaten Detroit in the last minute in October 9-7. Uh, so this Thanksgiving game, Starr was sacked 11 times for 110 yards, something that our friend Jerry Kramer probably wouldn't like the stats of. But again, like we had in Dominic and Sue playing with Detroit and Nick Fairley, and they were seen as fairly vicious, the Detroit had back then called a fearsome foursome. So this was defensive end Darius McCord, uh, defensive tackle Alex Karras, which everyone will know. And again, if you read Jerry Kramer's book, he's all over it. Defensive tackle Roger Brown and defensive end Sam Williams. Now, Vince Lombardi didn't like this Thanksgiving game, maybe for, you know, he liked his religious sort of family reasons. He had that whole thing, religion, family, Green Bay Packers, not necessarily in that order. Um, so he asked the NFL to cancel the tradition, which they did the following year. So he'd have to wait till 1963. Around from 1951 to 1963 and started up again in 1984 because we had this record where we used to always wax the Lions on Thanksgiving. But it wasn't always that way, Ryan, because 1951, the Detroit beat Green Bay 52-35, the highest scoring game in Thanksgiving history. Sick. 1953, Green Bay lead at halftime. 15-7, I think the score was, only to be beaten 34-15, so they got trounced in the second half. 1954, a year later, the Lions had their 12th consecutive win over the Packers with 28-24. The Thanksgiving Turkey Day was not our friend, but 1956, the first Thanksgiving game shown on TV, Green Bay win 24-20 and derailed the Lions. They were on their way to a title and derailed the Lions from their title chance. Isn't that just typical Green Bay, Ryan? I mean, they wait till it's televised. They wait till the Lions are about to get their title and then just derail the whole thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, if it's not on TV, it doesn't count. That's what my team, <laughs> team teammates tell me. I made a one-handed grab the other day in, in training. Yeah. But because it wasn't on tape, it never happened. So... Never happened. There's no... Yeah. So when it gets on TV, do the business because then it matters. <laughs> well, that's it. Some people crumble, some people don't. So that's 1962. Again, you know, absolute success. 1963, they kind of drop off again. And this is for two years, they drop off slightly. Now, they go 11 and 2 and 1, but they're still second in the Western Division. And this is the year that Paul Hornung is hit with the gambling scandal. So this is kind of a black mark, isn't it, Ryan, on the whole sort of, you know, 1963... Uh, NFL. Now we've saw previously that the commissioner came in and looked at ones back in, you know, the early days of the NFL and never found anything. So this has kind of been going on for a while. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, it. Yes, it's a black mark, but I, I think in this case he does so much good stuff on the field that you can almost move on from it. It's, it's certainly a part of his history, but it's something that I don't know. For me, looking back as a fan, I, I don't feel it. it, it it has any sort of black mark on him at all no it doesn't seem to and especially you know with a character like golden boy because we all seen david beckham golden balls he could do no wrong and then all of a sudden he he flicked his foot up knocked the guy over i think playing for argentina whoever it was i'm irish i don't, I don't remember uh, i'm not that vested in Simi- it simeone was it yeah was it was it simeone really yeah I don't know. Okay. I, I might have that horribly wrong. Everyone's going to jump on me. Uh, of course they will. It's the UK Packers podcast is what they do. So <laughs> your man fell over and then he became, wasn't Golden Balls anymore. And, you know, you slated him in the in the press. So Golden Boy, he gets caught up. So there's rumors flying around at the time, 1962, that there's some players betting against their own teams, which again is quite dodge. So Pete Rozell, who's the um, commissioner at the time, he orders an investigation, last three and a half months. And who's at the center of it all but Alex Karras. So this is the guy who, if you read Jerry Kramer's book, Instant Replay, he talks about Karras. He's a vicious guy, you know, a ballsy guy, says who he means, smash him out football. So he's kind of on the main stage for all of this. They look at Karras as the main guy. They even get one of the Lions coaches, George Wilson. He's in on the act. Um, and again, five other Lions players as well that they find for it. But all of a sudden, uh, Paul Hornung and Alex Karras together are called down to New York to the commissioner's office. He brings them in and makes them do a lie detector test, very meet the parents. So they take the polygraph test and they both pass it with not, because what they asked them was, did you bet against your own team? And they said, no, did the polygraph. It turned out they were telling the truth. But he still suspended them indefinitely and fined him $2,000. The Lions coach, as I said, George Wilson, he was fined. Five players from the Lions uh, coaching staff, they were fined. I like what you say, Ryan, and rightly so, is that it's not seen as a black mark, really, on Paul Horning's record because he wasn't betting against his own team. He was just having a gamble. 
and as well as that he was so above board when he did get suspended he'd be calling Pete Rosell and asking him look can I go to the derby races he'd he'd ring up uh, Pete Rosell and say I'm going to do an interview is it okay if I say this that and the other um so you know he's very above board with it all and this is the year also that we saw Bart Starr uh, now again as I said they were 11-2-1 and one. they were second in the Western Division so we're kind of looking at the reasons why they dropped a bit so Golden Boy out for the year and we also have John Roach comes in sounds very Irish and he is from Chicago so I would hazard a guess that he is Irish very close in his family he comes on as the backup quarterback plays four and a half games for the Packers where's number 10 he wins three and he loses one of those games to the Bears I think the half game or whatever is where he comes on after star he injures his passing hand and the Packers lost twice to the Bears in this season and that's why they came second because the Bears ended up coming first and the Bears were only half a game ahead so it's another thing that we see Ryan isn't it that in this era when the Packers do lose they tend to lose by half a game they tend to lose by one point they tend to lose by maybe three points and it's heartbreaking that way well wasn't it one of I'm trying to remember the, I can't I couldn't do the quote word for word but doesn't Lombardi say in one of the games they lose that we didn't lose we just simply ran out of time yeah I know that's not word for word but yeah yeah the Packers don't lose they just run out of time it's that's excellent it. it's it's a brilliant way to look at it and that's that comes true in um, Jerry Kramer's book all the time and he really makes the players believe that because when Jerry Kramer's talking in his book and you get to the end of one of the chapters he said yeah we lost but we didn't really lose we knew we'd have them it's just that you know the clock ran out on us and it's a brilliant way to look at it so you know 1963 with all the stuff going on it didn't bode too well so 1964 the Packers went 8-5-1 and one. again they were second um, and Jerry Kramer he was lost for the season you know we're kind of looking for reasons why they lost here so he was lost for the season um and he you know ryan he almost died jerry kramer almost died this year he was a shadow of his former self he lost something like i'm not gonna say half his body weight maybe that's just the irish storyteller in me that likes to you know over dramatize and hyperbolate a whole situation but he had actin omycosis which is sort of a bacterial infection of and i think he got an awful lot of his intestines taken out and Jerry Kramer at this time, and now again, we sort of hopefully touch on Jerry a little bit later. We try not to drag this podcast out too long. But Jerry used to be the kicker. And Paul Horning had to step in because he was back off his suspension at this stage. He missed 26 field goals this season. 26. So he is the Ryan Peacock of the 1964 <laughs> Packers. I was going to say, hang on, <laughs> I missed one and I, I've had two years of abuse and this guy's missed 26 and he's a hero. It's kind of the same thing because 26 We need to was... put it into perspective a little. <laughs> I missed one. Well, I, I just, I'd like to put it into perspective here, right? Paul Hornung, okay. that 26 was probably most of the field goals that season. We had one field goal to make and one field goal to kick and you kicked the field goal and missed 100%. So that's all I'm saying. That's all... I'm saying that it's very comparable. I can see your face right now. You're not happy about it. But I thought, right, if you're going to say missed 100% of kicks, then doesn't that have to be? I'm sure NFL stats would say something um, only applicable if 10 plus kicks attempted or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look- you can't just tell me for one kick. But okay, I get what you're saying. <laughs> they won the most. They won. They maybe still won all of their games, and we lost the championship. Well, no, we didn't, did we? We tied the championship. We tied game. the game. Yeah, it's very British. You know, you don't fight till the dead. It's gonna. The sun goes down. Let's go off for uh, pims and cricket and croquet. But uh, you know what? The, the, the season actually wasn't that bad. So they they came in second, but again. The defense was the best in the NFL. They recovered 25 of the 34 fumbles that they forced. And like that, they forced 34 fumbles. The running game again was number one. Uh, started and throw an interception for the last 11 games. So, you know, although he missed 26 field goals, it goes to show you how close they would have been to winning it had Hornung been able to kick those field goals. But they're back to being world champions the next year. So 1965, mm-hmm. they're 10-3-1 and, uh, and they're tied for first. So... 1965 again is kind of a momentous year with debts and, and stuff that goes on and there's another interesting thing that i'd like to talk about too but before that let's sort of give a run through the year so don chandler takes over kicking duties thank god he gets 17 to 26 and the packers outrushed in nine games uh so they're kind of getting trampled on jim taylor failed to rush this year actually for a thousand yards which is the first time in six years that he didn't do it but in those nine games that the packers were outrushed maybe teams were getting a bit wise to their tactics maybe jim taylor was a bit off uh, but they still won five of those games that they got out rushed in uh, so they still did pretty well they had a third ranked defense that year with 44 sacks and the lead leading 27 interceptions and then lombardi after winning this championship he signs a five-year uh, contract actually it's more than that it's like a nine-year contract extension 
um, from that year but I think it was an extension onto the contract that he had maybe at the end of the 60s but anyway it brings him up to 1974 and this is the year that Curly Lambeau dies so he has a heart attack while cutting his girlfriend's lawn every time I say that I just think of euphemism he's cutting his girlfriend's lawn and uh, in June 1965 and so that's that's the end of poor Curly so they renamed Lambeau Field Lambeau Field at the time so it was the Milwaukee Stadium on August the 3rd 1965 uh, after you know Lam- Curly Lambeau dies in, ni- in 1965 in June so it's only a few months after that that they rename it but Ryan here's something interesting that I found out if I was to tell you or if I was to ask a Packer fan how would you feel about selling the rights of the Lambeau Field to rename it after whatever the sponsor is? So say Coca-Cola Stadium. Would you would you, would you fall out of your seat if someone said, "Yeah, we agree with that?" Yeah, no, there's no way. You can't change you can't change that name. I think you'd find as well if the, if the Packers for some reason were that desperate for money, you know the Packers fans are putting their hand in their pocket to sort it out anyway. And here's what here's what shocked me, all right? Let me jump in. In 2000, they had a referendum they asked the fans, so they took out loans to sort of rebuild stuff. They took out loans and they wanted to pay them back. They held a referendum and they asked uh, the board. They they said whether they could sell the name and rights or not. 53% versus 47 said sell the name and rights. Can you believe that there is something in, you know, the Packer constitution there that says they can and still can sell the naming rights of the stadium. It's agreed. The city... And the team agreed. So, the, you know, the team got approval. They had to go to the city because the city effectively owned the team. And they said to them, do you agree with our verdict? They said yes. And they said that if you can raise $100 million, you can sell the naming rights of the stadium. And no buyer was found in 2000 to buy the stadium naming rights for $100 million, which is a lot of money. But isn't it crazy that if someone comes along and says, this sounds like a good deal. If UK Packers, if we, if we make it and come along and say, hey, hey do you know what? We're going to rename it. It's the UK Packers field. So there you go, listeners. If you can get all, just donate some money and we'll see if we can get $100 million together. <laughs> and then we can call it the UK and Irish Packers Arena. Yeah, we can call it whatever the, we want. Or we could give it a European feel and call it the Stadion de UK and Packers. <laughs> That's a weird mix. I mean, what even is that, you know? I don't know. It's like it started as a bit French, then it went German, then back to English. I like it. But yeah. it just goes to show, isn't it crazy that we are where an awful lot of people wax lyrical, don't change the jerseys, they're all, we've been green and gold. No, they haven't, they were blue and yellow, which stop, and blue and gold. And then they go, no, you can't name a Lam- anything but Lambo Fuel, that's blasphemy. You've sold the naming rights, you know, and the city agreed, the team agreed, <laughs> and you know, we can just roll in and buy. Uh, so 1966, so the year after the World Champions, again, they go 12-2, and two, and again, this is the year of the first Super Bowl. Now, it says on an awful lot of the literature that the NFL and the AFL merge. They don't officially merge till 1970, but they certainly shake hands and call a truce because they hated each other and they still kind of do hate each other for Super Bowl one. So officially 1970, they fully merge. But this is the one where they have the Super Bowl. So, you know, the mm. AFL team plays the NFL team. Now, not people are going to say NFC, AFC, whatever. It was the NFL and the AFL at that stage. Now, again, the Packers... In this, they were went twelve and two, but it was almost a perfect season. They sort of say that it was almost the best season under Vince Lombardi. They lost by one point to the Niners this year. That was one of the losses. They lost by three points to the Vikes in this year. That was the other loss. Bart Starr, this is why they call him the original MVP. He was named the NFL MVP this year. They did third rank defense. They had seventeen touchdowns given up all season. Forty seven sacks, twenty eight interceptions. I mean, these are big numbers. Now Jim Taylor getting old, so they signed Donnie Anderson for one million dollars. And Super Bowl one, they get there. Uh, it's against the Kansas City Chiefs. They play it in LA and the Packers win 35-10. And now again, we look at that as a big event now. But back then when they recorded it, again, they had sort of, you know, CBS and all that recording the games. And there's a few interesting characters in this game, a few funny stories. Um, but you cannot understand the animosity between the AFL and the NFL. They hated each other. And when the Packers got there for the NFL, everyone in the league turned around and united behind the Packers and said, Vince, you have to win this game. If you don't win this game, we don't want to be beaten by the AFL. There's no way. That, look, you know, you're, we're going to run you out of town if you do. So Vince was so nervous before the game that the CBS announcer, Frank Gifford, who interviewed Vince... He says, and I quote, he held onto my arm and he was shaking like a leaf. It was incredible. So Vince Lombardi, the steely Vince Lombardi, not scared of anybody, was quivering 
like a leaf before the game because you just didn't want to let anybody down. But again, Ryan, this is an interesting game for many interesting characters and interesting plays. It was a lot closer in the first half than the second, but one guy that stands out out of this whole game is Max McGee. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. And, and I'll go on to talk about him a bit in a minute. One of, one of the mo- most interesting things about this is, is this game, I think generally, like as you touched on, the attitude was that this was almost a post-season game. Yeah. Like the season had been completed. We'd already played Dallas. We'd already beaten Dallas. And this was sort of like a, um, it was almost viewed as a, as a post-season thing. Um, and, and like you said, Vince Lombardi was, was, not, was on a hide into nothing in a sense because if the Packers go in there and win, they go, well, you should have gone in there and won. That's an AFL team and that league's not as strong as our league. And of course, if he goes in there and loses, then it's an embarrassment to the whole of the NFL. Yeah. So he's really under, like you said, a great deal of pressure. And it's probably not helped if his team maybe don't follow his rules and certainly the curfew rules the night before the game. Offset <laughs> <laughs> so, Max McGee. Yeah, so this is one of my, I mean, this guy is one of my all-time favourite players solely for this story. And again, when I went out to Green Bay, I made sure I found his statue on the, uh, on, on the Legends Walk yeah. and I went and got my picture with it. Um, basically, what happens is Max McGee is... A guy, I think in in that season leading up to it, he'd had something like f- uh, four passes that he caught, right? So he's not a big, he's not a, uh, like a main part of the offense, but he's a guy that's been there for a lot of years. He's a veteran of the team. He's probably sort of already checking his his, his retirement check out. This is sort of, he, he's let's say he's not taking it particularly seriously. So everybody's heard of Boyd Dowler, somebody that made the all-decade team, one of the all-time legends in the Packers. He's the guy that's starting. He's the reason Max McGee is on the bench. Now, they don't rotate players in and out like they do in the modern-day game. So Max McGee basically gets the idea in his head, well, Boyd Dowler's playing. He's the superstar. I'm not going to play that much, so I'm going to go out. So he breaks curfew the night before, and he leaves the hotel, the team hotel, and he basically goes out with two flight flight attendants, or stewardesses they may have called them back then but I think they're flight, flight attendants in this day and age that he'd met in the hotel's team bar so off he goes out into the city um, and he basically just goes partying all night with these two women that he's met and basically this is the best bit about it he doesn't get back to the team hotel on the morning of that Super Bowl game till half past 6am <laughs> right so oh six thirty hours yeah. he rolls back into the hotel now Bart Starr quarterback of the team, leader of the team, you know, if you like, one of Lombardi's generals in terms of the locker room and the way the team should behave. He is the shining light of how a player should behave. He's got up nice and early. He's probably a little bit of Super Bowl nerves, um, but he's up and about in the lobby as Max McGee comes shuffling back in through the door. (laughs) And legend has it, as people have told this story a hundred times, but legend has it, they share a look, they say nothing, and Max McGee goes up to bed to go to sleep for a few hours and uh, and Bart Starr never says a word, never breathes a word of it to anybody. Yeah. But they share this look. And um, Bart Starr's obviously thinking to himself, brilliant, I hope I'm not going to need that guy tomorrow because he's going to be next to useless. Yeah. Anyway, as it will have it, Boyd Dowler injures his uh, right shoulder, which is something he'd had um, terrible trouble with over the season anyway. Yeah. And it's, something, it's right at the start of the game, like second, third snap of the game, Boyd Dowler's out, hurt his shoulder. Who have they got to turn to? Max McGee, who sat on the bench, he's had minimal sleep. He's been out all night with two girls. He's been partying all over town, gets in at 6.30 in the morning on the day of the Super Bowl, and now suddenly he is in the Super Bowl, and the star receiver's out injured. Most of us, we'd be absolutely useless, wouldn't be able to catch a thing, wouldn't want to run, and the first time we got hit, it'd feel like we were dying. Not, not Max McGee. He obviously runs better on alcohol because he scores the first touchdown in Super Bowl history, a 37-yard pass from Star. Goes on to catch six more passes for a total of 138 yards. And he goes on to say that even after 49 years that when this piece was written, so it might be a few more than that now, and the transformation of football from land to air, he scores another touchdown. He goes on to say that after all this time, he gets in the top 10 receiving performances of all time. So... This guy is, like I said, he's gone out. He's broken every rule in the book. He's drunk. He's now hungover. He's in the Super Bowl. And it does say as well, he probably should have in that game when the game is most valuable player. But instead, that goes to Bart Starr. But he goes on to have the most you know, amazing game of pro- probably one of the best games of his career. 
And I just think, you know, what a great story because to, to take that risk, not only on the Super Bowl day, but with a coach like Lombardi, who had he found out, there's no way Max McGee's bum would have been on that bench to start with. And it's one of those stories, isn't it, that they break the rules and they end up doing well. So although Vince sort of probably seen that and went, see, there you go, my curfews work. And you're kind of looking at it and go, eh, well, maybe, you know, you should send all the team out with two stewardesses and a few points. But it makes me wonder. You, you always talk about players on the Packers that have got Irish roots. I'm wondering if McGee, McGee could have been Irish. Surely. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Mac would sort of say Scottish, but there's a plenty of Macs over here, uh, especially up north. Uh, you know and again it, it's one of those things that if you know hindsight is a great thing but Fred the Hammer Williamson played for Kansas and he was going around the week before saying and he called him the hammer because back then it was legal to throw a hammer shot up into someone's face so it's not now like where you get sort of unsportsmanlike conduct that was sort of seen as what you do Jerry Kramer in his book Instant Replay talks about it all the time he gets that hammer blow up into the face you can daze somebody almost concuss them with you know a good elbow so Fred the Hammer Williamson came out publicly and said that he has three hammers he says he's two for Dowler and one for Dale and of course uh, Dowler ends up going out and he did leave injured like you said with a shoulder injury but the hammer himself which I think is brilliant is knocked out cold in that game and has to get stretchered off so how poetic is it that he knocks out uh, Dowler uh, he goes around saying he's going to knock out everybody else he gets waxed and then Max McGee comes in and saves today it's brilliant but again this is the sort of where the fa- fascination starts and we'll try not to draw on too much but try bring the podcast uh, to a close which is very hard to do with the Lombardi era so 1966 the second time 1967 Vince Lombardi becomes obsessed with the tree peat and in every type of you know footage or documentary or whatever God knows we've looked at enough on the preparation for this the one phrase that keeps coming out of his mouth every time is this year we're going to repeat and he just says it like that as cool as you like as if this is what we're going to do and it's amazing Ryan isn't it that they actually tree peat because the team that year they were aging the performances were you can only call them average there was a rotation of running backs and the world champions and the three-peat is a hard enough thing to do, but especially when the team is average. Yeah, well, I think you mentioned it earlier, Anderson, and there was another kid came out of college that they signed up and they signed him up for big money at running back. Yeah, Grant Kelsey, is it? Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So these guys come in and they should have added to the team, but actually all they do is they upset the guys that have been there for a long time as well. So not only are players maybe aging or some players are suffering from injury and stuff like that but now you've got probably for the first time in that team some of the players are starting not to like you know maybe falling out with each other I guess Lombardi just goes about his business with that with them sort of what happens in the next few years because obviously these kids are the future but it's um, one of the first stories you hear of sort of that those 60s teams there's something not quite right there yeah which kind of spells the end for Lombardi to be honest I mean I know he ends on a high but again his years as a coach go to 67 he becomes the general manager in 68 so 1967 they treat Pete. jim taylor is traded to new orleans um and hornung again which is a weird thing that happened is that they had this uh expansion draft because the nfl expanded in teams they gave new orleans their own team and there was all these rumors that certain teams were going to move around so the dallas team was going to go here and all this sort of stuff but it turned out not to happen but what they did have was an expansionist draft where you had to select a certain number of players to put up for draft and Vince Lombardi picked Hornung and again it's it's really touching in Jerry Kramer's book he talks about when he finds out he comes in and sees Vince and they find out that Vince put Paul Hornung golden boy up for the draft and he says to he just, I think he turns around he keeps his head down but he looks up at Kramer and just looks at him and says look I'm sorry and starts crying you know and he was very emotional like that as well Vince Lombardi he, he wore his emotions on his sleeve so Jim Taylor's gone Hornung gone yeah, you know the the offense was average. They they kept rotating the quarterbacks around. They ended the regular season with two losses. It's the first time that that happened since Scooter McLean, so it's not a good omen. And um, they played the Rams in the playoffs uh, because I think they were tied for first. So they won that twenty eight seven, which was convincing. But even from reading Kramer's book, which is about this period, definitely pick it up instant replay. It's the great. It's a diary. It's written in a diary form. Jerry Kramer even goes on kind of that he was aging, doesn't really want to play football anymore. His heart isn't in it. Uh, and he sort of thought that you know the, the luck is eventually going to run out so they played the Dallas Cowboys next in the Ice Bowl which is massively famous and credited for bringing the game into the modern era now again we're kind of running out of time we don't want to keep people too long and the Ice Bowl you could have a separate sort of documentary on but Kramer again is credited with making the most important block in NFL history and again this is a guy who was on the all NFL team the all team at right guard the all decades team the you know the 1950s 1960s team and he's in the Packers Hall of Fame he's got all these stats you know he's been to the Pro Bowl X many times 
but he's still not in the Packers Hall of Fame, which again, Ryan, is something that we get in the group the whole time, don't we, that how much of a travesty yeah. that is. And it's crazy as well because the website or that actually said that he was in the all-decade all team for the 1960s is the Hall of Fame website. That's where you find that information. And they have him in there as one of the best offensive linemen of that era. And yet, for some reason, he's not in. Now, I know there's all these theories about maybe there's too many players from that time in there and so on and so on. And I wouldn't ever take away anything from any player that's in the Hall of Fame because they're in there because they worked hard and they deserve it. Yeah. But you can look at players in that Hall of Fame and they haven't achieved half of what that guy has and it doesn't make any sense. No, but I don't think... You can't benchmark it, I don't think. You can't say to someone, oh, there's loads of people in from that era, so you're good, but we've kind of reached our quota. If you're good, you're good. If you if you sit a maths... And I'm sorry I'm getting passionate now here, right? But if you sit a maths exam and you go and you get every answer right, do they turn around and say to you, oh, well, you know, everyone in the class got 100% because the answers are right, so we're actually going to give you 75%. It doesn't make any sense. If you get it all right, you get it all right. The stats of this guy, he's a five-time NFL champion. He was selected to the All-Pro second team in 1968. He's a, you know, he, he led the NFL in field goal percentage in 62. He's a member of the 1960s All-Decade team. He's a member of the NFL's 50th anniversary team. He's the only member of that team who isn't in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's a member of the Super Bowl anniversary team. He's a member of the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. Look, this stuff goes on and on and on. He played 11 seasons for one team in his career, which was the Packers, and they were dominant and they were the first dynasty, and he still can't get into the Hall of Fame. But... As I said, let's not go into it. We already have, to a large extent. Well, yeah, I mean, my problem with it is is that the Hall of Fame, until they put him in there, the Hall of Fame for me is largely a joke because there's no good reason they can come up with and no one's ever produced a good reason why he's not in there. Mm. You know, like you say, you can't say, oh, because there's too many players, he doesn't go in there. I mean, it's, it's BS, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's no, that's no, it. it is. I did find out one cool thing about him, though, and you touched on it earlier about all his injuries. Yeah. It says... Uh, one of his nicknames at the time was Zipper because he had so many stitches. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? And apparently he went through 22 operations during his playing time. I mean, that's how this guy was not really achieved a lot, but he had to overcome a lot of stuff personally to be the player he was as well. Yeah, which is amazing to think that this guy, and again, sorry to be a bit morbid and macabre, but this guy's still alive from that period because we've seen an awful lot of young players of the game today who, you know, they die early from their injuries and this guy's body was beat up. You know, I, I think he did have some of his intestines removed with that whole bacterial infection and there was an accident as well when he was a kid. He stepped on a plank of wooden splinters, went up into his, you know, into his, I think it was his gut and they stuck there and that's what kind of caused and re-aggravated that. I think he had a, he broke his leg at one stage and played on it for a few games didn't even realize till after the season was over and the guy's still going around and he's still going strong he's in his 80s and we're meeting jerry kramer when we go to lambo and there's still tickets and still availability to go over and come with us but we digress we move on now so 1967 they repeated 1968 vince lombardi steps away from coaching and becomes the general manager so phil bankston who was an assistant at the time took over and this is where we kind of see the decline of the packers and they fall off. So this is the very this is the end of you know the first dynasty. And I'm sorry, folks, but it does not get any better for the next period. We have coaches coming in, uh, like Bart Starr comes back to coach the team. It doesn't go too well for Bart, um, and every other coach that comes in at the time, Dan Devine, uh, yeah, not good for him either. And so Phil Bankson's the assistant. He takes over. They go six, seven, and one. So it's their first losing season since Lombardi takes over and there's the stories about that Lombardi's the general manager now he comes down onto the field he you know he's looking around the field and he's kind of lost he's wandering around doesn't know what to do and then Ryan what I found was fascinating is that as general manager he has his own little booth in the stadium and he looks down at the play they had to soundproof the booth because the media could hear him shouting and screaming and banging the walls so they had to soundproof the booth he was in watching the games because he would go crazy anytime the Packers did something wrong. Uh, so although they soundproofed it, all the media at the time, if you listen to the interviews with them, they said you could still hear Lombardi, you know, banging against the walls because he was so frustrated, which just goes to show, you know, football was his his second love, maybe even his first love, if you ask his wife. Um you know, the guy was just obsessed. Yeah, he's a, you know, he's a, an incredibly special person for that time as well. And his success, I mean, the trophy now, the Super Bowl trophy, obviously called the Lombardi Trophy. If he hadn't have had that success in those early years, who knows what it would have been called, more than likely would have been the Tom Landry Trophy. Yeah. You know, and then it would have been all about Dallas again. So, I mean, that goes to show it. We play for the Lombardi Trophy. So that says that, that tells you just how special he was. And that's why they say bringing the trophy home. 
And again, from research and Vince, and again, we'll do a separate podcast on Vince because he is that type of character where there's just so much depth to him. You know, he was a guy, like reading Jerry Kramer's book, he turns around and he says that he hates him at times. You know, he really hates him. He's he's a horrible person. He's too hard on them. But then all of a sudden, he'll come in and tap him. Because I think it was Jerry Kramer's first training session with Lombardi. And Lombardi brought him down so, so low by insulting him, by, you know, driving him, by getting on him. And he, brought, he went into the locker room after and Jerry Kramer was sitting there and he was saying that he was ready to give up. He was ready. He said that I'm obviously not capable of playing at this level. And Jerry or uh, Vince Lombardi came in and said to him, Jerry, you're going to make uh, an absolutely fantastic right tackle one day and um, a right guard. And he's turned around and he's just said that that lifted him from the depths of the lowest of the low all the way up because he was a, he was a psychologist, really. So he becomes general manager. So really with Vince, as I said earlier in the podcast, and I'm just going to run through it real quickly, is that, you know, they're constantly trying to pull him away to different teams. So, you know, his first season with the Packers, Wellington Mara comes and approaches Lombardi and says to him, you know, I need you to replace Jim Lee Howell. He's not retired yet, but we want you to come in. And Lombardi says no. So a year later, the Packers win the title game. And again, Wellington Mara comes in and says, you know, Vince, how about it now? Because Howell had retired at that stage. So he said, no, uh, I'm still not going. So the Packers, again, to sort of reward Lombardi for staying in a small town, they gave him a contract extension in 61 and 63. In 1965, the Atlanta Falcons come in again and approach him. And Lombardi again says, no, no, I'm not going to do it. He says, uh, but I tell you what, why don't you take my assistant? And he gives him Nora Pecker. So Nora Pecker goes, and get this, Ryan, he goes 4-26. and 26. And he subsequently fired, didn't do too well. So Vince's contract goes to 1974. That's how they signed him for so long. But in 1965, the Redskins fired Bill McPeak. And he offered a job to Lombardi again. He says no, but so Otto Graham came in, you know, a legend in his own right. But he failed spectacularly. So after the 1968 season, they offered Lombardi a share of the team ownership in Washington. And that was really the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. And he left the Packers to join the Redskins. But Vince, at the end of his life, he wasn't a very well man. And they even credit going back to 1967 that he had a digestive tract problem. And they asked him to get seen and he said no. And it's only when he went to the Redskins and he came into the facility and one of the coaches looked at him and said, Vince, you know, you don't you don't look too well. And he said, yeah, look, I, you know, I really feel sick. I don't feel I don't feel well at all. And they said to him, you know, go to the team doctor, get him to just check you out, just a simple checkup and see how you are. And it wasn't good. Uh, so on June 24th, 1970, he was admitted to Georgetown University Hospital. He had anaplastic carcinoma, which is colon cancer. And they did an operation. They took out, uh, you know, a large part of his gut again. Uh, but on July 27th, so only a month later, they did uh, exploratory surgery and found out that it was terminal. And in September 3rd, 1970, at 12 minutes past seven in the morning, Vince Lombardi died at age 57. Um, you know, again, such a tragic end. And, and on his deathbed, to say how hard he was on all the players, every single one of them came to see him. And they all sat by his bedside. And even up to the very end, the Washington Redskins quarterback at the time said that Vince turned around and said to him, hey, do you know that an awful lot of the teams at the moment use the 3-4 defense? You know, not a lot of people use the 4-3. And he said, even up to the end. And he's, he's you know, he was, he was really, he really deteriorated. He was still talking about football. And that's the type of guy he was, Ryan, wasn't it? It's just football to the end. Yeah, I mean, it, it was his life. It was his life. Yeah. Yeah. What a man. And I mean, look, uh, we'll briefly touch on it and then we'll end it that Lombardi, again, it was so ahead of his time, not only in his coaching, but also his, you know, his sort of civil attitude and the way he went on. He was anti-racism and anti-prejudice. There's a story that goes back to when he was in college. They called Lombardi over, again, obviously being Italian. He was the son of an Italian. I think he was a, a vitular. He was a butcher. And um, when you look at this guy, he had tattoos all over him. He had work on one hand and play tattooed on the other. This was a hard man. And that's how Vince got his work ethic. And... Uh, that was his dad and, and Vince was brought up as in a proper Italian household and um, he would call over when he was in college and he said to one of the lads he stood in beside this other guy and said who do you think has a darker skin so Vince was you know prejudiced from the very start even when he wanted to get his first head coaching job they said no they're never going to employ a guy who has a vowel at the end of his name so again sort of saying because you're Italian you're not going to get it now personally speaking uh, the persecution that the Irish faced when they went to the States was very similar to the Italians. So there were signs up in the shops, Ryan, right? Now, again, maybe everybody's heard of this. The sign said, and this is the hierarchy of, of what they wanted in their shop. They said, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, right? No Irish, 
was at the bottom of the list to say you're not welcome here and that's the type of persecution that Lombardi faced so although that incident only happened for a short period of time and he got into a fist fight after that and was almost expelled from college that sort of stuff about race stayed with him so there was a guy who had an interracial relationship with the Packers he went around town and said if you don't let that couple in we're not doing business with you for the whole Packers team and he had black players on the team and he said I don't care if you're a black player I don't care if you're a white player you can play for me as long as you play well I'm not going to get at you so you know and that's what one of the players said I think it was even Willie Wood he said that he treated all the players the same treated them all like dogs so you know it's brilliant that you know even he says that you know it's not necessarily that he treated them well he didn't it was still coach Lombardi and again the final point that I'll end on is is that even as far back as then Vince Lombardi and it's famous with the Redskins there was a few players that were known to be gay and he said that if any coaches go and persecute a player for being gay he said that they'll fire them on the spot and that was a known fact and the, and the story is is because Vince's brother Hal he was gay and he had a boyfriend and everybody knew about it and so he wouldn't you know go against I'm not saying that's the reason he did it he was probably very very progressive because he was a very religious man and that's what they say he was so religious that he treated all people equal but it goes to show you a sort of uh, a test of time. So again, we're after running overtime. We're certainly not running on Lombardi time, which is always 15 minutes early. Um, that kind of concludes the Lombardi era podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. So again, the only way to end it is to just salute you. And we, we're not going to do it with a Lombardi quote. We don't want to make people's spines tingle too much. So again, from everybody here at UK Packers and at NFL, from myself and at Ryan Peacock NFL, we'll talk to you the next time. Goodbye.